Welcome to a special SCOTUS Confirmation Edition of the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile. Today was the first day of the confirmation hearings for the Senate Judiciary Committee for D.C. Circuit Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's second Supreme Court selection, who hopes to fill the spot vacated by the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. On the first day of hearings, we actually heard fairly little from the judge himself. The majority of the time was reserved for senators' opening remarks. But we did hear strident opposition from Democratic senators and from a series of spectators who periodically staccatoed the proceedings with boisterous bursts of opposition before being ushered out by security as peeved senators attempted to carry on. Opposition from the committee panel was, at this early stage, principally procedural. Democratic senators wasted no time jumping in as Chairman Chuck Grassley commenced the hearing. Senators Kamala Harris, Sheldon Whitehouse, Maisie Hirono, Cory Booker, and Amy Klobuchar all objected to what they described as the withholding of more than 90% of documents relevant to Kavanaugh's background, mainly from his time serving within the George W. Bush White House. These qualms were aired at some length by the senators, but after a couple of hours, focus turned somewhat more towards the merits of Brett Kavanaugh's background. On that score, Republican senators praised Kavanaugh as a rigorous and fair adherent to the rule of law, while Democratic senators previewed some lines of inquiry sure to be resumed over the coming days, centering mostly around Kavanaugh's judicial philosophy towards the nation's chief executive, one those senators described as overly deferential, and, as Democratic senators painted it, Kavanaugh's tendency to favor larger corporate parties at the expense of individuals and poorer parties before his D.C. Circuit Court. Other themes opined on included the uniquely fraught political moment, the court's increasingly central role as to the nation's most intractable political fights, Congress's abdication of its legislative authority, and the ongoing special counsel inquiry. To unpack the day's events, we are joined now by Blaine Evanson. He's a partner at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. He's part of the firm's appellate and constitutional law practice group. He's represented parties before the U.S. Supreme Court, and federal and state appellate courts. He's also a lecturer at the University of California Irvine School of Law. And in fact, he began a clerkship on the D.C. Circuit Court the same year. Brett Kavanaugh took his spot on that bench. Blaine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, on that last note, you entered as a clerk at the same time Judge Kavanaugh entered as as a judge, correct? Did you have a chance to sort of get to know him at all or the clerks that worked for him? Yeah, we we started about the same time. I don't know if it was the same week or not, but right about the same time um, he had just gotten confirmed to the court in 2006, and that's when I started my clerkship. And there were a few events where the judges and the clerks got to interact beyond their immediate chambers, and uh, so I got to speak to Judge Kavanaugh on a number of occasions and just found him to be just an incredibly nice guy, really warm and easy to talk to. Um, and his clerks were fantastic as well, really sharp, really just down-to-earth, good, good people. So I, I really enjoyed that, that little time I had to, to get to know him a little. The folks watching on, on C-SPAN this week will get their opportunity to, to get to know Judge Kavanaugh, although that chance sort of has yet to occur. The, the hearing today saw very little from the judge himself. We heard opening hearings from the senators on the Judiciary Committee, and Judge Kavanaugh was introduced by, among others, uh, Condoleezza Rice, we heard at the end a few brief introductory statements from the judge, but by and large, um, really the focus today was on the, the views, the opinions, the concerns of the senators sitting on, on the panel. We also heard pretty regularly throughout the day's hearings from some, some fairly vocal 
objectors in the audience of the hearings, let's say maybe a dozen times or so, the proceedings were interrupted by some folks wanting to, to voice their opposition to the, the candidate, it would seem. Those folks were uh, assured out. Maybe that would relate to kind of the first question I'd have for you is, what was your take on the, the tenor or the tone of the hearings today? We've done this now a couple of times in the past two years. We witnessed the confirmation hearings of Judge Neil Gorsuch, now Justice Gorsuch, last term he replaced Justice Scalia. And it seemed to me that some of the the urgency on the part of Democratic senators and maybe some of the um, concern voiced by some of those protesters it seemed a bit keener this time around now that we're um, nominating and hearing confirmation hearings for uh, President Trump's second nominee. Uh, did, did you have any thoughts on these, or at least this first day of hearing, as compared to what occurred last year for Judge Gorsuch? That is a good question. We're obviously only a day in, but I thought that the Gorsuch hearings were significantly more civil than at mm-hmm. least today was. I remember from those hearings there was a lot of hand-wringing from Democrats about Merrick Garland and the fact that uh, the Republicans had run out the clock and not not even held a hearing um, for him. Uh, and that seemed to be the main thrust of their complaints. But once they got past that, I remember a lot of useful and productive exchanges between Justice Gorsuch and the, Sen- the senators on his judicial philosophy, on textualism and originalism. And, and I thought those hearings were very informative. Today it was kind of a mess with the outbursts and the complaints about documents and such. It was not very civil, not very substantive, with a few exceptions. You know, it was, it was mainly aimed at uh, uh, sideshows. Yeah. As, as you referenced, the, I think the, the chairman of the committee, Chuck Grassley, was only a few words into his sort of first introductory remarks of the morning when a, a handful of, of Democratic senators pretty quickly jumped in out of regular order to, to voice their concerns about a, a couple of procedural points, maybe the most salient of them relating to to documents that had either been withheld or sort of belatedly provided. A handful of folks, I know, maybe most vociferously senators, Harris, uh, Senators Klobuchar, Booker, uh, Hirono, uh, White House, mentioned that just last night, I think something along the order of maybe 40,000 pages of documents were, were provided to the committee uh, you know, the evening before the first hearing was, was set. And in addition, I think the Democratic senators tended to characterize the amount of the documents provided as something along the lines of only 7% of what had been requested. Uh, Chairman Grassley described that differently, saying maybe half of what was requested had been provided by, among other parties, the George W. Bush Library. What uh, are your thoughts on the concerns with the documents specifically? And do you think some of the opposition from the Democratic senators was more outsized than it needed to be, considering one point that Chairman Grassley made was that the roles that Brett Kavanaugh had filled previously as an associate White House counsel and staff secretary to George W. Bush, those roles were, in those roles, he would be discussing some pretty sensitive topics, and it's understandable that some of that would need to remain sort of privileged and not out in front of the public. I guess, what are your thoughts on that particular dispute? It's interesting. Um, it has never been the case, I don't think, that the Judiciary Committee has had access to every single document ever touched by the nominee. For example, the committee didn't have Justice Kagan's documents from her time as Solicitor General when they were uh, holding hearings on her confirmation. 
So the rule is not that they get every document, and the question is really just whether uh, the nominee and the government have turned over enough of the of the materials to to really do the diligence uh, necessary for advice and consent. And there's some disagreement uh, from what I have read from former administration officials on how substantive and relevant the documents are from Judge Kavanaugh's time as, as staff secretary. Uh, the staff secretary in the White House reviews all the documents before they go to the president. And from what I have read, some staff secretaries have written substantive cover memos that contain impressions and analysis, and others have performed their job more in what they decide to pass along and without any or any significant uh, analysis or impressions of their own. And I obviously don't know what Judge Kavanaugh's, Kavanaugh's documents show, but that's sort of the dispute, as far as I can tell, between those who think that these documents would contain relevant material from Judge Kavanaugh and those who think they don't. I think it's also true, as, as you um, suggest, that given that this is these are documents going to the president on some of the most important issues of the day, that there are issues of the executive privileges, privilege, and that raises a whole other question over whether this is proper or not. Um, but for me, this fight is, you know, ultimately just a sideshow because there's no question in my mind that the senders have plenty of material to work with. They have hundreds of opinions, speeches, articles, more than enough material to question Judge Kavanaugh about really every issue uh, that they want to get his views on. So, you know, although they don't have everything, I, I feel like there's going to be plenty of material, plenty of uh, questioning of plenty of substance that they can question on over the course of the uh, confirmation hearings. Yeah, I think that was a point fleshed out a bit by Senator Flake in his opening remarks that sort of notwithstanding the extent to which documents were released from his time in the White House, there are 300-some odd opinions from his time on the, the circuit court that could give you a pretty good sense of where he might come down on salient jurisprudential questions. The first opening statement given by the Democratic cohort was, I believe, by Senator Klobuchar. And I think more than any point, she hammered home that the current moment that the society is, is living through is a, is a unique one and, and kind of a fraught one. She, she mentioned a few different examples of, of how, in her view, the, the rule of law was on maybe more tenuous footing than it, than it usually was. She referenced the 2016 election as being, to some extent, meddled with by a foreign adversary and the ongoing uh, special counsel investigation as to whether or not the president was related to that attempt by the foreign power. And more recently, she and, and many other senators actually referenced this tweet from the president about one he just issued yesterday about how uh, he was disappointed in the attorney general filing criminal charges against two sitting U.S. congressmen for white-collar crimes because it would uh, adversely affect their ability to get reelected in, in the House. So kind of with all that, Senator Klobuchar said the Supreme Court is more important than ever to, to present a counterbalance, some, some ballast, I think she described it, stabilizing the uh, U.S. government. Yeah, as a bit of a counter to this point, Senator Sass said, sort of dating back a generation, every time a Supreme Court opening has come up, Opponents and protesters will kind of make it seem like it's really the end of the world if, if this person makes it onto the bench and that, you know, maybe we shouldn't run away with ourselves thinking that this is any more problematic or consequential than those previous nomination instances. Because what, what, what is your thought on whether 
or not, we're kind of in a, a more unique moment and how that might bear on the, the process. Donald Trump is definitely unique, and and you know, I agree that the court is more important than ever in terms of checking his power and ensuring that the separation of powers are honored. But And it seems like a perfectly fair line of questioning for the senators to ensure that Judge Kavanaugh will treat President Trump like any other president, and even to ask about what he thinks in terms of judicial limits on uh, presidential investigation, the kind of limits that he thinks courts would impose um, on investigations. But I, you know, but the court is in a as good a shape as it has ever been. It is uh, the justices on the court. Um, you know, t- to the extent that there's a suggestion that the rule of law hangs in the balance, I guess I don't see that given how solid and legitimate and just healthy the court is. And and also there are just not that many issues on which Judge Kavanaugh would vote differently from Justice Kennedy. So I, I don't see a major swing in the court's decisions from replacing Justice Kennedy with Judge Kavanaugh. The exception is probably on gay rights, where Justice Kennedy was a leader on the court. And on abortion and affirmative action, Justice Kennedy was a bit left of center, so Judge Kavanaugh may move the needle a little bit in those areas. But uh, replacing a conservative Republican appointee is not the kind of potential shift in the court that will dramatically affect American life, I I think. It would obviously be very different if Trump were replacing Justice Ginsburg. And there, I, I would think that these arguments and concerns would be very, would be much more uh, valid and worthy of discussion. Yeah. There seems to be a, a range and a difference of opinion when it comes to how different the court would be with uh, Justice Kavanaugh in the stead of, of Justice Kennedy. It seemed like previously when, of course, it was slated to replace Scalia, he was almost viewed as a, as a clone of Scalia, and so it really wouldn't be of much consequence, the difference between the two. But as you say, there, there could be some areas of law where the, the two might differ, but it, it certainly is different than if he were you know, replacing you know, Justice Breyer or, or Ginsburg or someone like that. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think it's actually a very complex and interesting question with that replacement, mostly because it moves Chief Justice Roberts into the role as the median justice, and the fact that he is the chief justice and has the power to assign opinions, that to me is going to have a much more significant impact on the court's jurisprudence and the way it decides cases and the types of cases it takes, much more than just replacing uh, Justice Kennedy with Judge Kavanaugh, given that I don't see their jurisprudence, well, their jurisprudence certainly will vary, but I don't see their underlying votes varying in all that very, all that many cases. One one point you mentioned is the some of the senators, particularly on the Democratic side, were concerned with making sure that Judge Kavanaugh would ensure separation of powers were remained sort of properly constraining on an executive that that seems to bridle against them. There was a, a few times referenced, I believe, a law review article he wrote in two thousand and nine, expressing the view that. Uh, presidents should be treated with some degree of deference. They should perhaps be a bit insulated from the sort of hindrances like special investigations and, and prosecutions and, and other inquiries um, so they could, could discharge their role a bit more easily. It seems like sort of a curious line of attack against the judge. Obviously, Democratic senators are concerned with Kavanaugh sort of being presented perhaps in the near future with a case resulting from the special counsel investigation. But it's sort of a politically neutral issue whether a judge thinks the executive should have some greater or lesser deference. The 
know, President Trump is the president now, but presumably they will be Democratic presidents in the future. And so if there's a judge that finds it reasonable to give them some deference, that seems like the sort of thing that will cut both ways. But certainly is concerning to, to Democrats at the moment, you know, based on the current occupant of the White House. And if you had thoughts on that sort of line of attack with Judge Kavanaugh. Yeah, it, I suspect that will certainly be a uh, a line of a significant line of questioning in the hearings, given this change in position that Judge Kavanaugh had expressly, and you know he bases that his change of heart on his experience in the Bush White House and seeing firsthand what a president does day to day. It's not the kind of job where the president can take the day off to sit for a deposition and let others cover for him. There are tasks that literally no one else can perform, and so. Judge Kavanaugh's view, informed by that experience, was that uh, presidents should not be subject to investigation while they are in office. Now, he did not say in that article that that was constitutionally required or that that was the law right now. The article was a call on Congress to enact legislation that ensured that presidents would not be subject to investigation during their time in office. So I don't think we really know what Judge Kavanaugh thinks, what he would think about a question arising from this investigation of President Trump. And I think, as your question suggests, that it's, it's certainly true that Judge Kavanaugh's views on this are party neutral. He wrote the article in 2009 during the Obama administration when Donald Trump was not on anyone's radar. No, no one even <laughs> dreamed in 2009 that we would be where we are right now. So I, I don't think it's fair to read into his comments any sort of view on this president and this investigation, the particular issues that are uh, being faced right now. I suspect that a lot of questions will will be asked in that area, and it'll be interesting to see how uh, Judge Kavanaugh answers. One point made by, by Senator Ben Sass, sort of in response to Senator Klobuchar's argument that the time is, at the moment, are, are pretty politically charged, was that... The court has seemed to become more politicized, and as a result, these confirmation hearings have, have as well. As a function of, he said, the legislative branch, Congress sort of deferring and sort of punting on its its constitutionally mandated role to, to make the law. Uh, he said, too often, congressmen were happy enough to let administrative agencies do rulemaking and, in effect, lawmaking, while congressmen mostly worried about getting reelected and not doing anything too consequential or anything too risky that might jeopardize the reelection chances. Uh, he said, if only Congress kind of acted more, wrote legislation that, that addressed society's problems and did it in a, a more unequivocal and clear way, then the court would not have to, to weigh in on you know society's kind of most salient and challenging and intractable problems. That, that to me seems a little disingenuous. I'd be curious to know what you think, because you could have Congress write as you know clear and unambiguous of legislation as you want on things like you know assault weapons or campaign finance or religious freedom, and those questions are are going to come before the Supreme Court. I don't know what what did you think about his uh, his thought there? I actually found Senator Sass's statements today by far the most interesting part of the uh, the hearings and the most subs- the most substantively interesting. Anyway, you are certainly correct that on you know, firearm restrictions and campaign finance, that if Congress passes a law and a conservative court strikes it down, then that is the, the court wading into the, uh, you know, the political arena in a way that the Supreme Court might be viewed as politicizing itself. 
you know, the court doesn't have to take those cases, and it could rule on them in an incremental and careful way, sort of the way that John Roberts prefers. And by not doing that, and by instead striking down these laws, you know, the court opens itself to the criticism that it is wading into these these political areas. But I, I took the main thrust of Senator Sass's comments to be on the court's review of executive agency action, um, the situations in which Congress passes broad, open-ended laws without deciding the important political questions of the day and just leaving that up to the agencies to fill in the major gaps, which agency action is then reviewed by the courts, the D.C. Circuit and then the Supreme Court. And so Congress passes a broad and vague law, doesn't do anything to make the hard choices, leaves those hard choices up to the agency, and then uh, the courts on review of the agency. And I mean, that to me is an important question for Judge Kavanaugh, or important line of questioning for Judge Kavanaugh, because by far the majority of Judge Kavanaugh's, you know, so-called controversial decisions have been in this area, not abortion, not campaign finance, not religious liberty. The D.C. Circuit just doesn't get many of those kinds of cases, but it gets almost all of the agency review decisions. And his views on whether courts should be involved in these areas, whether courts should be deferring to agencies, or whether courts should be forcing Congress to make those decisions. Those are really important questions, and they are questions where Judge Kavanaugh has a very unique and deep set of experience. One other element of Judge Kavanaugh's experience that's pretty interesting, he was referred to, I think, a few years ago by, by Senator Dick Durbin as the, the, the Forrest Gump of uh, partisan Republican politics, and that he tends to to pop up if you look back in history and into some of the the more you know heated partisan wranglings we've had over the past generation. He was, of course, deputy to Kenneth Starr during the Clinton investigation. Uh, he's actually I hadn't known this uh, a counsel on the Bush v. Gore case, perhaps the the most obvious example of when the court became pretty inextricably intertwined with, with politics. So he's obviously in the in the White House counsel we, talk, we talked about after 9/11 when you know some some pretty uh, significant government action was taken or maybe approved of in the areas of inherent enhanced interrogation or torture. It's one contrast between him and, and Neil Gorsuch, where aside from some Tenth Circuit opinions, there wasn't a whole lot of instances in which folks on the other side of the political aisle would look at, at Gorsuch as a you know as, as a veteran of partisan fights. But here, Kavanaugh pretty decidedly is. I guess how how does that sort of fit into into the process here? It certainly seems interesting to note. Yeah, it is, it is actually fascinating, and that statement by Senator Durbin was from Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings to, to the D.C. Circuit in, in around 2006, and, and I expect we'll see lots of questioning about this, but, and, and I think it was, it was an important question when he was being confirmed or being, after he was nominated to the D.C. Circuit, because the question there is, given all this partisan experience he has, is this guy a partisan hack, or is he a serious jurist that we can rely on in this important court to make decisions based on the law rather than just on his political affiliation that he's been so intimately involved with? But now, after 12 years on the D.C. Circuit, it doesn't seem like as much of a relevant issue. Um, No one who has had any significant interaction with him as a court of appeals judge thinks he is a partisan hack. Um, He is a serious jurist with real views about the law and the Constitution that are just not merely partisan. He, he's a conservative, for sure, but over a course of 12 years and, I think, 300 opinions, 
those opinions don't evidence uh, partisanship. He rules for and against Democratic administrations, just like he rules for and against the, the agency action and those who, who challenge it. So I, I think that th- this will be talked about in the hearings, but I hope that the real force of the, or the real focus of the discussion is on his views of administrative law rather than his, you know, uh, past experience in partisan fights. One thing that, that Republican senators pretty repeatedly accused Democratic senators of was really being more caught up or concerned or sort of just bothered by still the outcome of the 2016 presidential election and perhaps the, the impact that outside actors had upon it and, and sort of letting that concern bleed over into concerns about Judge Kavanaugh that might not be otherwise founded. In, in your view, how big of a shadow does that election cast on the proceedings? It does seem like the president has factored in to a decent extent. He was referenced pretty regularly by folks on both sides of, of the divide. You know, in, in hearings that you think would be pretty focused on, on the judge and his qualifications more so, what, what's your thought on the, the impact and the, the shadow of the president over these hearings? Yeah, I, on the on the shadow of the president himself, I think that there's definitely some concern, and some of the questions are getting are going to get at this. I'm sure that making sure that Judge Kavanaugh is going to be neutral in whatever uh, comes from the president up to the Supreme Court, whether that's uh, subpoenas or actions by the president, like the the travel ban or whatever. I think they want to make sure that Judge Kavanaugh is not going to just defer to the president. And then as to the election, I think that uh, it goes to the point that, the Republican point, that elections have consequences. And, you know, uh, Senator, Senator Cruz's point that, you know, elections have consequences. This was one of the major points of the 2016 election, and you infer from the vote and the election of Don- Donald Trump that the electorate wants the kinds of judges that Donald Trump said he would nominate. And the Democratic response to that is that President Trump lost the popular vote, and he was, at least allegedly, aided by the Russians. Um, So I think that the election and Donald Trump are certainly a theme in all of this. Again, I hope that that doesn't become the focus, because I think there are lots of important legal issues, judicial philosophy issues that they should be discussing, and that I hope they'll be discussing. But you know, given that this is politics, I suspect that will that will bleed in um, from time to time as well. Yeah, I, one one of the Republican senators also, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, made a a point along these lines too that you know, notwithstanding t- sort of you know, some of the the theater that's put forth at these hearings, that really everything is just about the law and judges and their j- judicial umpires that bring no really personal ideology or partisan affiliation to to the bench. Graham sort of dispensed with, with most of that and said, well, yeah, of course, um, there's a whole lot of politics involved here. The judge has some political and ideological positions that make him an attractive candidate for the the party that has the power to nominate him, the president elected um, from the Republican Party. It was just interesting to, to kind of hear his take and con- contrasting it with some of the other senators saying, you know, that judges just call the, the balls and strikes. And Graham said if a, you know, a Democratic president were to nominate a judge, that that president would want to know the judge's opinion on, on, for example, Roe v. Wade. And so it's not terribly shocking that 
this judge might have a particular view on that case that folks on, on the right and the, the person nominating him might want to know about. Uh, it just seemed interesting to him, you know, sort of uh, letting us peek behind the curtain a little bit to how the, the real politic of this, this uh, can work. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the distinction is between partisan and uh, their judicial philosophy, because I think every judge uh, or every justice, in certainly in the in the modern era, since this has become a political issue, and and since the parties have spent so much time and effort learning the judicial philosophies of the people who they are going to nominate, uh, these justices have well developed philosophies and views about the law, and those are you know conservative and liberal liberal philosophies. And I think you know Senator Graham's point is that obviously they have these. These are we're not just calling. Uh, people who are smart and skilled in the law but don't have views about some of these important constitutional issues. But I, don't, I think that that's different from partisanship. They don't vote for Republicans or for Democrats. They vote their views on the law and on the Constitution. And a, for Justice Scalia and Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, they would vote in favor of a criminal defendant if the result in that case was compelled by the original understanding of the Constitution. And they would vote, and they wouldn't vote for the prosecution or for the big company or whatever, if it was not um, uh, compelled by the original understanding or by the text of the statute or, or whatever. So I think it's it's judicial philosophy, not partisanship. And if you distinguish those two, then I completely agree with Senator Graham that that all these judges, um, certainly the ones from the Republican side, but I think also the ones from the liberal side are chosen because of their judicial philosophies and they're and they're supported by special interests because those special interests know that the outcome of their judicial philosophies is going to be decisions that they like. I think that's definitely a reality and it's it's good to hear Senator Graham admit that. You know, um, in terms of parties liking a particular judge's outcomes, Senator Booker and, and a handful of other Democratic senators made the same point that in, in their view, Judge Kavanaugh's jurisprudence has tended to kind of regularly favor a particular class of parties. Those senators would say that most often the the more powerful parties, the, the bigger parties, corporations, employers, the wealthy would tend to prevail in his opinions over individuals or workers or women, or minorities, environmentalist parties. You know, without kind of wading into each of those as those are legal issues that will get unpacked presumably over the course of the next couple of days. I was mostly just curious if you think the judge will dig in to his, his, his thoughts or his, uh, his, his approaches when it comes to those particular um, dynamics over the next couple of days, or if senators will, will be asking along those lines, or if instead, as tends to happen, the candidate will, will more often sort of deflect when it comes to, to specific questions about types of cases and, and talk more generally. And so perhaps instead the focus over the next couple of days will be more procedural, you know, complaints about withheld documents or the, the pace of the hearings or maybe the judge's take on broader questions like executive power. I guess, how deeply do you think these individual legal questions will be dug into? Yeah, that, that's, that's a good question. And, you know, if the past couple confirmation hearings are any indication, I don't expect uh, Judge Kavanaugh to get into any real depth in terms of how he would decide a particular case or rule on a particular issue or, you know, his, his, his views on a given issue. 
But, you know, I, I thought that Senator Booker's and also Senator Whitehouse's presentations today, you know, were pretty effective in terms of showing how, you know, on Senator, in Senator Whitehouse's case, how the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of, you know, big corporations over the past, uh, past several terms. Uh, he kept referring to the Roberts Five and how um, all these major decisions where it's a, a big corporation present, uh, pitted against an individual plaintiff, how the Roberts Court has ruled. And, you know, I suspect they will try and ask him questions about some of those individual areas like arbitration agreements and campaign finance and, uh, and, and those sorts of areas. But, you know, it's important to recognize that these are all areas in which he's just not any different from Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy did not, did not rule against corporations very often at all, uh, at least out of step with, uh, his other, uh, with the other conservative justices on the court. So I suspect that the Democrats will harp on this. I don't expect Judge Kavanaugh to get any, into any sort of uh, detail on the various issues that they're going to try and bring up. And I also think at the end of the day, this is not one of those areas where he's going to move the court much, uh, much at all uh, in terms of the ultimate outcomes. Maybe just one last one to wrap up. The, the judge had the opportunity at, at the end of today's hearings to introduce himself, uh, say a few words about his, his family, his approach to the law, how he got into it. Do you have any thoughts about his opening statement? One thing that was at least interesting about uh, his opening statements was his reference to uh, Judge Merrick Garland, the chief of the D.C. Circuit, which I think he referred to as a, a superb chief judge, probably to the chagrin of some of the Democratic senators in front of him. But uh, any thoughts on his, his opening statements? I thought it was effective. I thought that he came off well and likable. I think he is genuinely a really likable, warm guy. There, there was nothing earth-shattering in his opening statement, but I was, I was mostly impressed by his demeanor. And I think if you, lo- you look back you know, all the way to the Bork nomination um, you know, 30 years ago, that, you know, these are, there have been several tough confirmation hearings for the Republicans, uh, the Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito and, and Justice Gorsuch and, and Justice Thomas. And in each of those, the only ones where the Republicans ran into trouble were when it was sort of personal to the candidate. So Justice Thomas had his whole, whole thing um, with uh, sexual harassment and Judge Bork just, you know, refused to play the game and did and wasn't ready to to deflect issues or to respond in a way that was uh, was good for public consumption, even if it was conflicted with what the senators were asking him. Um, but Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, they have all uh, been likable and responsive and and sort of humble in the confirmation hearings. And in all of those confirmation hearings, the Democrats weren't really able to land very many punches as a result. And so I listened to his opening statement and just hearing his demeanor and the way that he's uh, there, sort of humble, ready to answer their questions. I think they're going to take a lot of shots to Democrats, but I just don't see them landing punches. And I will be shocked if he's uh, not confirmed. That's my impression as well, but he, he did come across in those few minutes as a a very agreeable fellow, and this notwithstanding, several hours where he had to sit there silently and and really be the the subject um, of some some pointed criticisms from folks on the the left side of of the bench there. In terms of, uh, including at least a couple of instances where senators really suggested he was chosen principally or maybe even only because he would, in almost a quid pro quo kind of way, protect the president from uh, from investigation. So that I 
agree with you there. He did show some uh, some humility and, and agreeableness in some you know, fairly trying circumstances. But uh, okay, we could probably go ahead and wrap it up then there. We certainly have some days of hearings ahead of us, so we'll get some more answers into how these things develop and how these dynamics play out and what issues will be dealt with here over the next couple of days. But for now, uh, Blaine Evanson, partner with Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, and so a lecturer at UCI School of Law. Thanks very much for being on the podcast to unpack the first day for us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. And that is our show for wrapping day one of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. I thank one more time our guest, Blaine Evanson for joining the show and thank you as well for tuning in so much appreciated be sure to stay tuned to the Daily Journal for continued coverage of the Kavanaugh confirmation process I'm Brian Cardell have a good night